It's I mean, obviously tough to swallow. Um, I mean, not, not only for, for me, but just for football in general. I mean, just to take away greatness like that. I mean, for a guy like Travis to make a play like that. And who knows if we win. But as I know as fans, you want to see the guys on the field decide the game. And that's why last week I didn't say anything about the flag. They didn't get called on the Marquez. And so, I mean, I, don't, it, I mean, they're human, man. They make mistakes. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's every week we're talking about something. And all I can do is go out there and give everything I have. And I'm proud of the guys because that's what we did. And it was a great football game that ended another great football game that just ended like that. It's just tough, tough to swallow. Patrick, what, what do you, lack of better term, what made it boil over? Was it that itself or was it the It's the call, man. Just in that moment, I mean, it's it's not even for my, myself or for me. It's just I know how much everybody puts into this game, and for it to to happen on a flag change the outcome of a game. Um, in that moment, I mean, I, I've played seven years, never had that, never had offense all sides called. I mean, that's we that's elementary school. We we talk about. I mean, you point to the ref, do all that different type of stuff, and and it doesn't get called. And if it does, you, they warn you. And there was no warning throughout the entire game. Um, and then you wait till there's a minute left in the game to make a call like that. Um, it's, it's tough, man. It, it, I mean, it's lost for words, man. It's just it's tough because regardless if we win or lose, man, just just for the, it, the end up with another game and it, we're talking about the refs, man. It's just not what we want for the, for the NFL and for football. Patrick Mahomes. He's not happy. Welcome, everybody. To the We Know Ball podcast. We are live on YouTube for those of you tuning in on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We are diving straight in to the world of sports. Episode 76. Appreciate any and everybody tuning in live on YouTube, tuning in afterwards on YouTube, listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We got a lot to cover today. We got a great slate of NFL Week 14 games. We actually have two more games yet to be played, Monday night football games that, uh, I mean, they're not like the greatest games, and we always record on a Sunday night. So here we are talking about the NFL, talking about the referees. The officiating in the NFL seems to be the main storyline most of the time this season. Besides the excellent players, besides the excellent plays, good matchups, this and that, there seems to be a lot of interjection from the officials. Or, in some cases, a lack of interjection. Missed calls. Things that swing games. And Mahomes dealt with it, or at least he feels like he dealt with it, in their matchup today. And 
We'll get into all that. We'll break down all the scores. We'll dive straight into it. But before we do, welcome one and all. You obviously heard the comments from Mahomes, and we'll get back to those as we dive into this NFL slate, this NFL week 14 cluster of games, if you will. Because uh, there's it was a pretty good cluster, fun to talk about. Lots of great matchups. Um, and before we get into Mahomes, we will talk about a couple of other things, a couple of other sports, because this is We Know Ball. We know ball, and that means a ball, a sport that involves a ball. We're talking baseball, basketball, and football. Anything else you want to talk about? We covered a little bit of soccer last week, and we'll get into the NFL uh, in a little bit. Not too much long. Not too much longer, I should say. Uh, but there's been some other big-time developments in the world of sports. First, we'll start with basketball. Talk about the NBA playing tournament a little bit because... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what to make of the in-season tournament. So the final game of the in-season tournament was played on Saturday. The Lakers took on the Pacers, I believe, uh, but the Lakers came out on top. I wanted to, I wanted to verify that very quickly. Uh, NBA scores. Let me just make sure because there was a bunch of other games going on, but they weren't play in games. And also, I've, I was curious to see, you know, like how they would work that in, in terms of the schedule. So, yeah, Lakers played the Pacers. They beat them 123 109 in the championship game of the NBA in season tournament. I think everybody could agree the NBA in season tournament ended up being a really good product. The problem with the in season tournament for me, a casual NBA fan, but somebody who can appreciate the sport of basketball. It's a little bit disheartening from the outside, knowing what this tournament is and basically why it was created at its roots. And that meaning is, it seems like they created this tournament to give the regular season a little bit more meaning, have these guys play with a little bit more intensity, right? Get some superstar potential type matchups or superstars featured on prime time. Got, of course, LeBron and the Lakers playing on that Saturday night. But the the problem with the in-season tournament for somebody like me on the outside looking in as a pretty casual NBA fan, but somebody who follows the sport pretty well. It's hard for me to even really get super dialed into the NBA in-season tournament when I know at its roots it was created to make the regular season mean something a little bit for these guys because before the in-season tournament most people would agree that the nba regular season was mildly important in terms of the overall championship implications people would sit around and talk about these guys are sitting out load management guys are going through the motions and then when teams get into the playoffs that's kind of all that matters in in some sense of the nba with so many different teams getting into the NBA playoffs, so many teams with a possibility to win an NBA championship, it's like the seeding and the participation of the star players throughout the season, it like almost didn't matter to these guys. So the in-season tournament, for me, it was still kind of hard to get fired up about. Not because it wasn't a good product, 
those guys played a lot harder than they probably would have normally in a regular season matchup, regular season game. That's a fact. They definitely played way harder. The product was better. But why does it take the NBA and the commissioner of the NBA to put in a tournament during the regular season to make it so these guys play hard or at least give a better effort than they would have in a normal regular season game? Why does it take that? I know the NBA season is super long. It's long. It, it drags on a little bit, some would argue. And once they've expanded the playoffs and they've added more and more and more opportunities for teams to get into the postseason, the regular season has lost a lot of value. And everyone knows that. And I'm not sure what the answer is to solve that problem. Maybe it is to cut down some of the playoff teams to motivate these teams to play a little bit better. Maybe it is to give them an extra game of home court advantage. I don't know what it could be. And I'm not the solution maker, but I know from the outside looking in, the in-season tournament was really hard for me to get fully into. Especially when like there's like other games going on the night before that are regular season NBA games that do count, but they weren't part of the in-season tournament. So hats off to the commissioner for trying something. The NBA and season tournament will probably stick around. It was a great generator of revenue, as I'm sure most of the new things they put in are designed for to make more money. I get it. But ultimately, the in-season tournament, for me, still not quite there for a lot of people. It was fun to see like a tournament-style game, a championship game. But what does it even mean? What What? And for people like actually for people that are genuinely using this NBA in-season tournament and the accolade of winning that as an argument for like LeBron and Michael Jordan, nobody's questioning LeBron James top two, arguably the best player ever. There's a lot of arguments for both guys, Michael Jordan, and LeBron James, totally get it. I, I kind of swing both ways. I, I, I tend to lean Jordan sometimes. And then I lean LeBron other times because LeBron's doing some incredible things at the, the age he's playing at the level he's playing at with, age 38 or whatever he is to be as old as LeBron and to be playing as well as he is, that leans me towards LeBron being the goat. But then you look at Michael Jordan's accolades. I lean towards Michael Jordan. It's a hard choice that for tons of arguments for each guy, but please don't be the person that uses the NBA in season tournament championship as an accolade to boost LeBron's case as the greatest player of all time. Please don't be that person. Because the NBA in-season tournament, it, it, it means nothing. It means nothing. In fact, if you ask these old people or people that are on the side of like Michael Jordan or decide that LeBron is not the greatest of all time, it might even work against you in the argument. Because the NBA has had to create a tournament during the season to make the regular season mean a little bit more. And the argument for the other guys, people that aren't LeBron James for the greatest of all time, they could sit back and tell you those guys didn't need an in-season tournament to be motivated for the entire regular season. They didn't need a play-in tournament to add in a couple of extra teams in the postseason. No one's arguing LeBron's all-time great. All-time great. But please don't be the person that's like, well, LeBron won the in-season tournament this year too. Like, if he falls short, he won the in-season. I Please don't. I never want to hear it. I never, ever, 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 ever want to hear LeBron winning the in-season tournament 
as a part of the case somebody could make for LeBron being the greatest of all time. I'm not saying he's not the greatest of all time. I honestly don't know the answer. I think it's an incredibly tough debate. I lean LeBron more recently because of this, the level of basketball he's playing at the age he's at. But then I look at the accolades for Michael Jordan and I lean Jordan. It's, it's hard. It goes both ways. But one of the accolades that cannot be part of the conversation is the NBA in-season tournament. And on the, on, the outs, on, the, on the first part of that that I touched on, it's hard for me to put any weight on the NBA in-season tournament because I know at its roots, it was created to make the regular season mean something to these guys, which means before, it didn't really mean anything. And if you don't think the NBA regular season, it didn't mean zero, but if you don't think the NBA regular season was kind of just a casual play-in for these guys to just go through, best talent will probably end up in the postseason with eight teams coming out of each conference. The regular season was like, get into the postseason. Be healthy once the playoffs start. Let's try to get a pretty good seed. Let's go play some ball. And then we get in the playoffs and eight seeds are beating ones. And yeah, that happens in different sports. That happens in all kinds of different things. But the key for LeBron and the Lakers to winning a championship is LeBron, Anthony Davis, and the rest of his supporting cast to be healthy and available once the postseason starts. LeBron probably wouldn't really care that much if he was a one seed or a seven seed. If he's got that, that's what he cares about the most. So knowing at its roots that the NBA in-season tournament was created to place more value on the regular season, that's why it's hard for me to really get into it. It was a great product. LeBron played well. It was entertaining. But it doesn't mean anything. And then now we're like, okay, now what? Right? Now what? So in-season tournament, good idea, good concept. Hats off to Adam Silver for like trying to Im implement something that's, you know, trying to create a little bit of change, a little motivation, financial incentives, whatever the case is. But I think ultimately at its roots, it's everyone knows what it was created for. And that's why it's kind of hard for a lot of people to get into it. That's at least my opinion. Okay. But my opinion means nothing, right? And if you liked it, I mean, I liked it. It was like, I watched the Lakers Pacers game almost all the way through. Missed the first five minutes of the first quarter. That was it. Watch the rest. Thought it was really entertaining. LeBron James is an absolute monster, but in-season tournaments, no other sport has that because they care about their regular season. I don't know. I don't know. That's just me. Moving on to Major League Baseball. Couple of major developments that we will get into more on our We Know Baseball podcast coming out a little bit later this week. But a lot of developments in the world of baseball. And we're Like I said, we're going to dive in like analytically and all that different stuff. If you guys are interested in hearing, in that, hearing about that, the move with Juan Soto to the Yankees, the move with Otani to the Dodgers, all these different things, they're huge, and we'll touch on them now. But we'll get even deeper and more in-depth on the We Know Baseball podcast so be sure to check us out on spotify or apple Podcasts with that one but two big moves everyone knows about them really sent some waves through the sporting world definitely through the baseball world um move number one being juan soto to the yankees do i think juan soto to the yankees is as big a deal as people are making it. No, I don't. 
not only because I was a Padres fan and I watched Juan Soto play for the last couple of years, but because baseball is a sport where one guy and one player cannot, has not, and will not be the deciding factor of a team's success. I don't care if it's the best starting pitcher in the world. I don't care if it's the best hitter in the world. Prime example, Shohei Otani. Oh, and his teammate, Mike Trout. Two players that were the best in their particular sports on the same team. And the team itself had no success. Because baseball is a team-oriented sport at its finest and at its roots. You have to pitch well, you have to play defense well, all nine guys, and you have to produce offensively in the lineup from at least five, six, seven different guys at at least the league average to above average level. Depth in baseball from a roster construction standpoint is maybe more important than any other sport, any other league. In terms of you have to have production up and down your lineup. You have nine individual players getting the same number of reps, same time contribution. And then you got one pitcher pitching one day and you got five total starting pitchers. Then you got like eight guys in the bullpen. So do I think Juan Soto going to the Yankees is going to transform that organization and the Yankees are all of a sudden going to win the World Series? No. And hell no. The Yankees are multiple multiple pieces away from like actually being a better baseball team. Juan Soto is an excellent baseball player. Aaron judge is awesome. They got Alex Verdugo. They've got Garrett Cole. They've got some pieces and they're definitely going to be competitive next year. There's no question about it. But the Yankees treating Juan Soto like this acquisition is going to be transforming their organization entirely. It's simply not going to. Now, instead of two players with an OPS plus over 100, they have three players with OPS plus over 100 last season. Okay, how many extra wins is that going to add to your 162-game regular season? Three? Four? So now you're, instead of an 82-win team, you're 86-win team? Now the Yankees could go out and make a bunch more moves and drastically improve. But I don't think Juan Soto is going to put them over the hump. That's the last missing piece they needed. Now the Yankees are going to be the Yankees again. It is cool. I will agree. It is cool to see a left-handed slugger and pure hitter like Juan Soto end up at a stadium like Yankee Stadium because I think his talents are going to be maximized. He's probably going to hit 40-plus home runs next year. He's probably going to have a great offensive season. Maybe he gets extended. Maybe he doesn't. He's going to flourish. He wants to be in a big market. He wanted to be the superstar. He wasn't on the Padres because he was overshadowed by a handful of other guys in that roster. Now with the Yankees, he has the opportunity with Aaron Judge to be side-by-side, two-headed monster, go out and tear it up in the American League East. But those two guys can't be the only ones producing. And how did the Yankees do when they lost Aaron Judge from a lingering injury throughout the year? Without Aaron Judge, the Yankees were a bad team, like a bad baseball team. Not average, they were bad. Now, if Judge and Soto stay healthy the whole year, Yankees are probably looking at 88 to, to 91 wins. And that's good. That gets you in the playoffs, especially with the expanded playoff format. But Juan Soto going to the Yankees, 
it's not enough for the Yankees to get over the hump. Still a lot of work to do. And also, if anybody knows anything about one or two superstar players not being the deciding factor, it's baseball fans with the Angels and Otani and Trout. Those two guys are the two of the best to ever do it. And they were on the same team for how many different years and amounted to nothing. So do the Yankees. Good move for them. They need to do a lot more to be actually well-rounded and competitive, not just for the upcoming season, but for years and years to come. Not to mention, Juan Soto's only on a one-year deal. There is no guarantee that Juan Soto ends up back at the Yankees. There's no guarantee. The Yankees have the financial means to potentially re-sign him to a long-term contract. But if Juan Soto goes to the Yankees this year and they go 82 and 80, he is out of there. He's gone. If he has an okay to a little bit above average year, he's gone. There's a lot of other teams and a lot of other situations that could potentially land a guy like Juan Soto. So I think everybody with the Soto deal needs to gain a little bit of perspective and just realize he is not the piece that's going to send them over the edge. Offensively, they struggled last year. No question about it. They still have a lot of holes in their lineup. They still need some help on the pitching side. By the way, they gave up four pitchers, including the minor league pitcher of the year, Drew Thorpe, to the Padres in exchange for Juan Soto. So now they're thin on pitching. Thin on pitching depth. One of their most reliable guys, Michael King. He's up and out of there. Yankee fans are happy. They should be. They got a great player. They are going to be a better team with Juan Soto than they were without Juan Soto. But this doesn't move the needle for the Yankees, in my opinion, especially considering how much they gave up and where they need to build and add depth for their roster next year to have sustained success for the entire season. Speaking of individual players, the biggest news out of the baseball world this offseason so far was where Otani or Shohei Otani was going to sign. He announced on his Instagram, he is signing with the Los Angeles Dodgers. It, the Dodgers have been planning for this. For those of you who don't follow baseball very well, like they don't have a salary, ta- a salary cap, but they have a competitive balance tax, which is some form of a salary cap, except they can go over it. They just pay penalties back to the league if they exceed the spending limits. But the competitive balance tax is pretty high, and the Dodgers have been cutting salary, only keeping couple of really superstar cornerstone pieces and then using young controllable talent to kind of fill out the rest of the roster a couple of trades couple of you know veteran pitching signings things like that but they were well underneath the competitive balance tax fully prepared to make a gigantic offer to Shohei Otani and the reports are that they did that nothing has been officially announced by the Dodgers uh, which is interesting uh, I guess they probably still have to file the paperwork and get everything fully figured out. But Otani to the Dodgers, it is a 10-year contract for $700 million. Average annual value of $70 million a year. $35 million for the pitcher he is, $35 million for the hitter he is. The problem with this contract, the problem with Shohei Otani getting $700 million, as I can tell you right now, 
the pitching side of his contributions is already up in the air. That's not to say he couldn't come back, be just as good, just as effective as he has in his previous time in the major leagues. But that being said, he's coming off his second Tommy John surgery. And if it gets to a point in four years, five years, seven years, where they go, you know what? We got to bang this pitching. He keeps getting banged up. He isn't able to, to be a regular piece in the lineup. He needs another surgery, whatever the case is. And he becomes just an offensive contributor. It is almost impossible to justify paying just an offensive contributor on, in baseball an average annual salary of $70 million. It is almost impossible to justify that based on the value of the rest of the guys in the league, the competitive balance tax, all those other considerations. I understand a lot of his money is going to be deferred so that it doesn't impact the competitive balance tax. I'm just talking strictly average annual value of 70 million. If he becomes a hitter only at any point in this contract, it, in my opinion, it is a bad contract. Now on the flip side, the ceiling for this contract is Otani becomes another top five starting pitcher in the major leagues, a top three hitter in the league. And if he does that for six out of the 10 years in this contract, if he is a successful contributor on the pitcher's mound and he hits at the same level he has been for six of the 10 years of this contract, it's worth it. At his peak, Shohei Otani is worth $35 million as a pitcher on the mound in today's day and age, today's market. As an offensive player, he's worth 35, probably 40, maybe 45 million a year as an offensive contributor. So if he can do both of those things after he comes back from this arm surgery, and he can be the same contributor he was at the same high level, offensively and defensively, for six of the 10 years of this contract, it is a good contract for the Dodgers. The only problem comes in if Otani can't or ends up not being a contributor on the pitcher's mound for one reason or another, they shut him down. He gets hurt again. So many different factors and he becomes just a hitter plays outfield. DHs. This is a bad, bad, bad contract. 10 years, 700 million. That's insane. If anybody, if anybody deserves to be the highest paid player in baseball, it is unequivocally Shohei Otani. But on the flip side, if he ends up not contributing as a pitcher, three years in, five years in, seven years into this contract, and he is a hitter only, DHing, it will be a bad contract because it is impossible. It is impossible. I don't want to hear any arguments. Otherwise it is impossible to justify an offensive only player making an average annual salary of $70 million a year. It is impossible to justify that, especially based on and considering the rest of the league and the guys that uh, he's hitting up with and hitting against guys that are making 30, 35, 40, Mike Trout's making 45. Mike Trout plays defense, plays a premier position in center field. A lot of other guys play premier positions. They contribute defensively. 
If Soto's a hitter only and has no or limited defensive contributions, it's impossible to justify $70 million a year. So for the Dodgers, this was this Dodgers Okani Otani. Was I gonna say contract? Okani is what I said. This contract from the Dodgers to Otani is a massive, massive, massive gamble. It is a massive gamble for the Dodgers. The part I want to make sure people know. If he becomes a hitter only, it's impossible to justify $70 million a year for Shohei Otani. However, the only other part that needs to be in serious consideration in this contract that I don't think a lot of people are considering is the fact that the foundational underlying thing with Otani that no other player has in the entire sport is the wholehearted support of an entire developed country. Literally, Japan is all in all the time on Shohei Otani as a baseball player. He's the pride and joy of the Japanese culture. And the value generated from him being on your team, from a social media standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, from a sponsorship standpoint, from a TV contract standpoint, it is almost impossible to quantify that. That's the only part of this contract where I'm like, you know what? Even if Otani is just garbage for 10 years, he's got the entire country of Japan supporting the Dodgers. Just the Dodgers. The Dodgers' fandom just grew by 20% because an entire country is now a Do Dodger fans for Shohei Otani. And that, to me, is super valuable, super important. One thing I didn't consider early on in this contract, but something that everybody needs to consider moving forward. Because Otani is a national treasure, not, of, not just, of course, in the U.S. because he plays in the U.S., but in Japan. He is Superman in Japan and not the worst looking guy. Heartthrob to a degree. He's got every single demographic going right after him. And that part of it to me could potentially end up saving this contract if the on-field contributions from Otani aren't quite what they have been in the past. But I do think, and I will stand by, if he becomes a hitter only at any point in this contract, it's almost impossible to justify giving a guy 70 million a year Average annual value, I know there's whatever, but 70 million a year to ju just hit. That's crazy. That's crazy. But good for Otani. He got his money. He did whatever he needed to do. 700 million is absolutely astronomical. He deserves it to a degree. I just hope and pray he can play and be healthy contributor because watching him play is so sick. He's so good. And it's mind boggling to watch a guy throw 100 and hit home runs like 45, 50 home runs. It's crazy. If he can do that, if he can stay healthy, boy, oh boy, are the Dodgers going to be a problem. They're going to be a problem. That guy's a monster. Uh, moving on. Moving on to the NFL. Moving on to the NFL. NFL. All right. Let's get some NFL action in here. Week 14 of the NFL has come and gone. For the most part, there are some other teams yet to play on Monday Night Football, but the Sunday games, the Thursday games, we'll be recapping 
exactly now with all the storylines. Let's get into it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. NFL Week 14. Kicking off on Sunday, started off with Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Atlanta Falcons. Both teams come out of this game with a 6-7 and seven record. Um... I don't know. I'm not sure if these teams are good. I'm not sure if they're bad. But I do know that the NFC South is a garbage, garbage, garbage division. I also know if we looked at, let's see. NFL stats. And we go to ESPN and we go to team statistics and we go to defensive leaders and we go to the complete leaderboard and we go to rushing yards allowed per game. I thought Tampa Bay was pretty high, but I guess they're not. I was going to say. It was pretty weird to see Desmond Ritter throw the ball 40 times, but he threw the ball 40 times. Um, it was more refreshing to see the Atlanta Falcons actually using their young first round pick stars that they, you know, drafted. Bijan Robinson, uh, he had 15 touches. Drake London had 10 catches. Kyle Pitts had six targets. Like that needs to be the thing moving forward for the Falcons. Uh, now, I know they were behind for a decent amount, which means you have to throw the ball more, but the Falcons and the Bucks, zero threat, in my opinion, to anybody. Zero threat. Uh, next up on the list, the Bears play the Lions. Detroit Lions on the road playing against the Chicago Bears team. They score 13 points. They do not look good offensively at all. And I'm not really sure what to make of this too much. Sometimes bad teams beat good teams. I get it. But if you're a Lions fan... There might be a little bit of a panic button finding its way out of the drawer and onto the countertop. It's not full panic time yet. They're nine and four. They're in control of their own destiny, but they haven't looked very good for the last few weeks after starting off on fire. Things are going to level off. You always knew the Lions were going to be a two, you know, they were like seven and one. Seven and two, something like that. But to lose to the Bears, that's not a good look for the Detroit Lions. It's not a good look. Bengals played the Colts. The Bengals beat the Colts. The Bengals are seven and six. The Colts are seven and six. And neither of those teams have any business being at that record. The Bengals haven't played good all year. Before, during and after Joe Burrow. The Colts don't have a good team, but they do. It's so weird. 
The Colts have a great defense, but then they get blown up and they give up a bunch of points. Gardner Minshew is a league average NFL quarterback. And then he has games like last week where he like, I think he put up like 35 or 40 points against the Ravens. Like what? It's very weird. I don't know what to make of it. And we're kind of going to keep moving here and go over the underlying theme of the NFL this season, which is crazy. And we'll do that kind of after this early morning slate. Up next, you got the Browns hosting the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Browns beat the Jags 31 to 27. The Browns are eight and five. The Jaguars are eight and five. The Browns have had Deshaun Watson for like six full healthy games this year. And then they slide a handful of different quarterbacks in. They've had four different, four different starting quarterbacks this year, and they've won with four different starting quarterbacks. How? How? How is that happening? Joe Flacco. Threw for 311 yards and three touchdowns. For Joe Flacco to throw for 300 yards and three touchdowns is absurd. For the Jets to play the Houston Texans and to beat the crap out of them is absurd. For C.J. Stroud to throw for 91 yards is absurd. For the Ravens to have to take the Rams to overtime, that's absurd. For the Vikings and the Raiders to finish with a final score of three to nothing is the most absurd thing I've ever seen in my entire life. The Bills beat the Chiefs at home. How does that happen? The Bills have looked horrible all year. The only outcome to me today that made a ton of sense, two different ones, was the 49ers beating the Seahawks 28-16 to and the Denver Broncos beating the Chargers 24-7. to Two things to talk about with those games very quickly. I think I don't even know what to say about the Chargers. I don't know what to say. If I was a Chargers fan, which I would probably be one of the 10 still alive and actively rooting for that team. I would be wondering how 13 games into the regular season, we are five and eight. Even though, yeah, Mike Williams got hurt. We've had. Keenan Allen, Austin Eckler, Justin Herbert, Khalil Mack, Derwin James, Joey Bosa. I know he's hurt too, but all those names on the same roster. It's a Pro Bowl roster, and they're five and eight. There's something going on with that organization. I'm not going to blame witchcraft. I'm not going to blame. extraterrestrial i'm not gonna blame uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pin it to supernatural causes 
But that's what I've had to resort to. That's what everybody's had to resort to in trying to solve how the Chargers are consistently one of the most embarrassing franchises in the NFL. There's one thing to be the Carolina Panthers, the one in 12. That's embarrassing, but they knew they would be bad this year. The Chargers, their win total is like 10, 10 and a half coming into the year. Herbert, Pro Bowl, Eckler, Pro Bowl, Keenan Allen, top five receiver. Joey Bosa, Derwin James, Khalil Mack, Pro Bowl roster. I have had to resort to supernatural causes in explaining how and why the Chargers always, always, always lose. They lost in San Diego with some of the most incredible rosters of all time. They continue to lose in Los Angeles in the most devastating and gut-wrenching ways possible, one-possession games, or they show up and they just get rolled. Or they play a decent season, they get into the playoffs, build a 27-point lead, and they lose. How does it happen over and over? I have resorted to supernatural explanation. There's no other way you could describe it. Yeah, you know, Brandon Staley, not the best head coach. Goes for it on fourth down a lot more than he probably should. Defensive schemes are not where they should be at all. Guys are out of position. A lot of different things are happening to that team. Yes, I can understand that contributing to them not doing well. But the talent should outweigh a lot of that. And for the Chargers to be 5-8 and eight this year, for the Chargers to blow a 27-point lead last year, for the Chargers to never have won a Super Bowl with Rivers, Gates, LT, top three defense in the league, how? How have they never gotten out of this horrendous rut? It is mind-boggling. It's incredible. But if somebody's asking you or you're having that debate with your buddies, it's a simple answer for me. Somebody cursed them along the way. It's supernatural. That's the only thing I can think of. It is a supernatural explanation. Because it is unbelievable how bad the Chargers are. Now Herbert's hurt. Just chalk it up. It's over. It's over. Ch literally chalk it. The other game we didn't talk about, Thursday Night Football, Patriots, Steelers. The Patriots beat the Steelers 21 to 18. Uh, I am upset that I had to spend any time actually talking about that game because it's so brutal. The last two games we'll talk about here before we end up wrapping up this episode. Later game in the afternoon on Sunday and then Sunday Night Football. The Bills beat the Chiefs 20-17. Towards the end of the game, the Chiefs were losing 20-17. Mahomes completes a pass deep over the middle to Travis Kelsey, who throws a cross-field lateral to Kadarius Toney, runs it in for a touchdown. Flag on the play. Offensive offsides. Kadarius Tony lined up with his foot in the neutral zone in an illegal position and was called for a penalty. Play came back. Chiefs ended up not converting. After the penalty, lost the game. And let me tell you something. I can't. I cannot believe 
how Patrick Mahomes is handling the last second penalty against the Bills. Considering the fact that he directly benefited from a very nuanced, very ticky-tack, very controversial penalty in the Super Bowl to give the Chiefs a first down and ultimately win them that game. The Chiefs were direct, direct benefactors of a very controversial penalty in the biggest game arguably ever, the Super Bowl, Chiefs and Eagles. And after that game, I distinctly remember every single member of the Philadelphia Eagles team, coaching staff, organization coming out immediately. Not necessarily defending the refs, but having the mental mindset, having the approach after the game that, you know, it was an iffy call, no question. But we gave up 35 points as a team. We let them drive down the field and get into that situation. We didn't do enough to win that game. Who knows what happens if they don't throw that flag, the holding call on the Eagles to give us an automatic, to give them an automatic first down, right? That's what the Eagles are saying. Who knows if they throw the flag or not? Who knows if that actually was a holding? But we didn't do enough. And Patrick Mahomes, he's freaking out, airing out the National Football League and the officiating for a penalty that was as clear as a penalty comes. Kadarius Tony's foot was in the neutral zone. And by rule, that is a penalty. It is a violation of the rules. So the officials threw a flag, called it correctly. And Patrick Mahomes has, dude, he has the audacity to go into the postgame press conference and air out NFL officiating after his team was a direct benefactor of a, honestly, a bad call in the Super Bowl that granted him a first down and ultimately the victory. Not to mention, Patrick Mahomes has also been on the receiving end of some pretty questionable roughing the passer calls. Where most people could distinctly remember Mahomes getting shoved and throwing his arms in the air. There's the flag, roughing the passer. And then the refs get the call right. They call one of his players offside because he lined up in the neutral zone on offense. And however rare that penalty may be, that's the rule, Patrick. He's doing... Uh, Patrick Mahomes is murdering his own reputation. Patrick Mahomes is single-handedly disintegrating most of his reputation, all the grounds that he has to stand on, hurting everything about any argument people have for him being potentially, eventually one of the greatest of all time. Because he's sitting there taking zero accountability for the fact that the Chiefs scored 17 points against the Bills, a team that has lost half of their defense to injuries, a team that has coming into this game struggling, scuffling, at home. Everything readily available at his disposal, and they didn't do enough to win that game. And Mahomes' default 
is to go bananas over a penalty that was enforced correctly. How how does he think that that's okay? And then his wife, oh my God, his wife takes a picture of the referees on the field, on her Instagram story, and puts MVP next to the ref. Dude, what are you talking about? Patrick Mahomes went from great player, didn't complain about the referees last week on a really bad, really questionable pass interference call that he should have got called on one of his, his one of his receivers. Took accountability, talked about how these guys are human. We didn't do enough to win the game. Then he flips a 180 the next week and turns himself into what I believe to be one of the most dislikable guys of the season so far, based on his reaction to the officiating in the game that he lost and he didn't do enough to win. The referees called a penalty, enforced it correctly. He's complaining about that, airing them out. His wife is posting an Instagram story, dogging the referees. Andy Reid's dogging the referees. That to me, that to me is not the sign of a champion. If I was a Chiefs fan and I saw the way these guys were acting after the game, oh boy, I would be really troubled. I would be super concerned. I'd be, ba- I'd be hammering the panic button. Because the reaction from Mahomes ultimately was a reaction of frustration. Not just because he didn't think the call was accurate and affected the game and took a touchdown off the board, but because the Chiefs actually have underperformed this year. They haven't looked very good in a lot of their games. They've struggled on offense. Mahomes has had a hard time staying upright in the pocket. His receivers have dropped every single pass he's thrown this year. All of that frustration, I totally understand it. Makes sense to me. But to go in after the game and air out the officials for making the correct call, like clear as day, right in front of everybody's face. Initially, offensive offside. We were like, what? Show the replay. Oh, yeah, he's offside. Great call. And Mahomes is like, what? I've never had that called. I've never had that. Okay. I'm sorry you've never had that called, Patrick. But it was a penalty. Take one small ounce of accountability. Holy cow. How brutal. Unbelievable, dude. I could not stand it. Patrick Mahomes single-handedly like trying to destroy his reputation and destroy the levels of respect everybody has for him by handling that penalty call the way he did. His reputation is not destroyed. Everyone knows he's the best player. But, you know, he's amazing. I, da, 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 I get it. But that's not a response. That's not an approach you would see or like to see from a guy you're hoping to get another Super Bowl out of. It's completely mind-boggling to me. He has the balls to question the officiating on a correct call when he directly benefited from a bad call in the Super Bowl that could have potentially decided the game if all other factors were taken out of it. But after that game, the Philadelphia Eagles, who were on the poor end of a bad call by the officials, came out after the game and said, you know what? Probably not the best call, but that that didn't decide the game. We didn't play good enough to win. We didn't play good enough to beat the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. 
yeah, there was a, a touchy holding call, gave him a first down, pretty much ended the game. But we put ourselves in that situation. And for Mahomes to lose his marbles over a correct call is so bananas. And if I was a Chiefs fan, that is big time red flag, big time concern for the rest of the season. Mahomes is an all-time great, no question about it. But if I'm a Chiefs fan and I'm looking at this team going into the playoffs and that's the way they're going to handle tough situations or adversity, yikes, woof, that is not good. You don't want to see that out of a guy like Patrick Mahomes. It's kind of embarrassing, if I'm being honest. Nobody agrees with Mahomes. Nobody. Except Andy Reid, apparently. Last game to talk about, Sunday Night Football, Cowboys, and Eagles. Cowboys beat the Eagles up pretty good. 33-13. Uh, Eagles played a little bit uncharacteristically. They, turned, they fumbled the ball three times. Three, arguably their best three offensive players, Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, and uh, Devontae Smith, all fumbled in that game. That You're never going to win when you fumble the ball three times. The Cowboys moved the ball down the field pretty effectively, scored 33 points on that Eagles defense. Two things to take away from this game. Number one, the Eagles are beatable. I think everyone's noticed and seen that, especially about how they've played these last two games. Number two, uh, I hate to do it. I hate to do it, but I'm going to do it. The Cowboys might be the best team in the NFL. No, they're not. The 49ers are better, but The Cowboys this year, it's got to be, it's got to be Super Bowl or bust. It's got to be Super Bowl or bust, man. They're 7-0 at home. If they get a home playoff game and they lose, holy cow. I mean, they are playing the best football I can remember of my lifetime as, a, as an entire collective group. Dak is out of his mind. All their receiving targets are out of their minds. Their defense is everywhere. Micah Parsons is unbelievable. Deron Bland is like 15 pick sixes. It's got to be Super Bowl or bust for the Cowboys. It has to be. It has to be Super Bowl or bust for the Cowboys. And I think they could do it this year. I think the Cowboys could win the Super Bowl. I don't know if they're the best team. But if they're not, they're a close second to the 49ers. And if they play the 49ers at home, okay, that game will be stupid. I think the 49ers are better. But if the Cowboys end up skirting through the playoffs and don't have to play the 49ers, I don't know, crazier things have happened. Cowboys, it, you, they've got to be Super Bowl or bust this year. There's an argument for the Cowboys as the best team in the NFL. There's an argument. They've had some tough losses, but they've lost to some good teams. It's got to be Super Bowl or bust. For the Eagles, I think as much as it's disheartening to see them play poorly back-to-back -back weeks, they weren't going to go undefeated. 
Every team needs a little bit of adversity. The Eagles need just a good, clean reset. I wouldn't be shocked, and I don't know if any of this is even ever really reported, or I don't know what's going to happen. I wouldn't be shocked if the Eagles, you know, if Nick Sirianni, the team's like, dude, guys, we're practicing on Wednesday. Monday, we're off. Tuesday, we're off. Come back Wednesday, light, light. Thursday, okay. Friday, let's, let's throw the pads on. Saturday, walk through. They have had, the Eagles have gone through a gauntlet of games and situations with their schedule. They had to go the Dolphins at home, at the Commanders, then they played the Cowboys at home, at the Chiefs, Bills at home, 49ers at home, and at the Cowboys. Bruh. Now the good news for the for the 49ers is they play Monday night. I'm sorry, the good news for the Eagles is they play a Monday night game. They got an extra day and take a little bit of time. Dak looked good again. Jalen Hurts looked okay. Running game was okay. They just turned the ball over. Can't turn the ball over and win. Cowboys look out. That's it, guys. That's all I got. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Episode 76 of the We Know Ball podcast. My name is Ryan. Be sure to check us out on social media. Twitter, at Ryan Knows Ball. That's the handle. At We Know Ball Sports. Instagram and TikTok. If you guys are looking for some clips from the uh, episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, check us out on Apple, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, both this show and the We Know Baseball show. If you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, check us out on YouTube. Got all the clips on there. Got some reaction videos, all kinds of good stuff. Greatly appreciate it. Episode 76 in the books. Episode or week four. Oh, last thing, Jaden Daniels. Congratulations. You won the Heisman. Love that. Um, college football kind of, you know, it's a little until the end of December with the college playoff and stuff kind of sucks, but got the NFL. So either way, hopefully you guys enjoyed episode 76 and next time. Uh, no, I was going to say, I thought, let me look at the edge, uh, the NFL schedule. Cause I thought there was some sweet games next week. Oh, and also there's two games tomorrow night on Monday, Titans, Dolphins, and then the Packers and the Giants. Titans, Dolphins, nah, nah, that won't be good. Um, yeah, next week there's some Saturday games. That's that's the thing. Broncos, Lions on Saturday, Vikings, Bengals. That'll be decent. Steelers, Colts. It's kind of just a bunch of mid teams. Um, now you know what? I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with this. The NFL in 2023, the most unpredictable I've ever seen the NFL in my entire life. Bad teams are good. Good teams, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Horrible, 
offensive teams are finding ways to win. And I've never seen it before. It's this year, the NFL, more than ever before, I truly believe is anybody can beat anybody at any given time. As much as I would love to say, I would love to say, oh yeah, it's going to be the Ravens and the 49ers in the Super Bowl. Sure, could happen. Probably the most likely outcome. But if it's the Browns, And the Packers wouldn't shock me anymore, man. This year is just Bananaville. It is the most unpredictable thing I've ever seen. And I'm not just saying that because I lost literally every single bet I placed in NFL Week 14. That's completely beside the point, unrelated. But it's the most unpredictable I've ever seen in the NFL. Stay on your toes the rest of the year. Seriously. Some devastating injuries throughout the season that have drastically impacted the outcome of the year. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked if we get down to the Super Bowl and it doesn't feature the Dolphins, the Chiefs, the Cowboys, the 49ers, or the Eagles. Don't be shocked. I'm telling you, we might, we might end up with a... Texans Packers Super Bowl. That's how crazy the NFL is this year. Anyways, either way, hopefully you guys enjoyed. <laughs> that was the last thing. Episode 76 in the books. We'll catch you guys next time. Peace. Try to make up for it. Fire to the end zone.